Let's pray. Father, we are your children, your sons and your daughters. We are not our own. We have no autonomy. We are purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we are subjects to the master, submissive to our Lord, servants to the king, and children of yours, God. Fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so we consider the sufferings of this present time, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And so we put our hope in Christ and we stay focused on that hope as it assures us and reminds us that every ounce of hardship and trial and difficulty and suffering that comes from every sacrifice we make has a reward that is eternally joyful. So it's very easy, Father, for us to show up on Sunday, do our job, act like good Christians at church, shake hands, be kind, sing songs, listen to Mark preach, call it a day, check the list, go home, feel good about ourselves. Well, Lord, we do pray that when we leave here this morning, we do feel good, but that that good feeling is rooted in Jesus Christ and that that good feeling is a motivation toward righteousness and holiness and a willingness to recognize the sacrifices that will have to be made this week to bring you glory and honor and for us to be sanctified. So your word, Lord, does that work and we trust your spirit to do that work this morning through the preaching and teaching of your word. And it will only work if you hold the key to the door of my mouth and if you control my tongue and if you open hearts and minds and you teach and you work and you sanctify. We are dependent wholly and completely on you. So just pray that your work would be evident this morning in the way that we live our lives this week. Lord, as I leave for a week and a half and depart from the church of sheep that you have called me to shepherd, remind your people, Lord, that they are never without a shepherd because you are the great shepherd of the sheep. You are the chief shepherd. That even in my absence, you fill that void greater than I ever could. That I am simply an instrument that you're using while I'm here and when I'm not. Remind your people that you are the king. You are the leader. You are the pastor. You are the shepherd. You are the teacher. You are the reason we do church. You're the reason we do Bible study. You're the reason we pray together. You're the reason we worship and sing and give and serve So be with your church while I'm gone. Encourage them, strengthen them, keep them committed to faithfulness. Don't let them wander or become weary in the absence of church leadership, but encourage them knowing that you are the greatest leader. So just pray your protection your love, your patience, and the power of your gospel to be at work while I'm gone so that your church would realize that while I'm gone, you have always been their king, their leader, their pastor, their shepherd, and that you love them. So this morning as we open your word, we ask your spirit to work in a way that brings you much honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. So last week we discovered the importance of devoting ourselves to the Word of God as a means to strengthen our souls and to be sanctified. So we talked a lot about the devotion 
and the sanctifying work. And today what we'll see is that this is more than just a personal journey we're on. So last week I would say that the emphasis was on your personal devotion and sanctification, your devotion to the word and to the body of Christ, but ultimately your personal devotion to the word and your personal journey of sanctification and growth in Christ, which requires your intentional personal, one-on-one devotion with God in his word and in prayer. But today, we'll see that this is more than just a personal journey that we are on. That That our own individual sanctification impacts those around us, especially, this is especially true for those who are called to the public ministry of shepherding and preaching and teaching. The impact of our personal growth not only affects those around us, which will be a strong point of emphasis in this text. But it also reminds us of the need that we have for each other as we encourage each other and and also to carry each other toward glory. Like, that's our goal, right? Like, do you guys ever think about that? Like, what am I doing here? Why do I exist? What's What's the ultimate purpose of my existence? Why did God make me? Why did God create anything? Why do we exist? Why, why, why is the question that every human has been asking since the, since the beginning. And the answer is obvious to believers, to Christians, to people who know who God is. We exist for God's glory. Why did God make you? For his glory. So then the question becomes, well, we know that. What is my purpose in this world? How does God want me to glorify him? And then he gives us his word, which says, do these things and that will glorify me. It all begins with believing in Christ. But when we think about that, the purpose of our existence is to glorify God. We're given this hope and this promise of this future where that very glory that we are trying to manifest. Now realize we don't produce God's glory. We manifest God's glory. Okay, we don't make glory for God. We reveal God's glory. Glory is the manifestation of holiness. Or holiness and glory are the same thing. Glory is the word we use to describe the act of holiness. Okay, holiness is righteousness and perfection. And it's revealed in scripture as brightness or just as God's perfections and, and righteousness. And so when we are holy... So God is glorious because God is holy. His glory is perfect and eternal because his holiness is his perfection and his eternality. So when when we talk about glorifying God, the idea of glorifying God is this idea that we should be holy. Our holiness, our righteousness, any sense of perfection that we convey. Now, I know that none of us are perfect, but we do reveal perfections at times. Any holiness that we reveal is what we would call glory. Because our holiness shows what? The holiness of God. Anything you do that's holy reveals God's holiness. That's the whole point. Therefore, your holiness glorifies God. Now, you aren't producing glory. You are manifesting the holiness of Christ that's already in you. So the glory, the fullness of God's glory dwells in you. Hold on a second. Everybody, listen to what I just said. The fullness of God's glory dwells within you. Now, when I say that, it makes me feel like, well, then why haven't I exploded into a gajillion pieces? Because isn't God's glory too great for me to contain? Yes, it is. It is absolutely too great for you to contain, which is why you need the Holy Spirit in you who contains it. And when he manifests holiness out of you, he is revealing the holiness of God, and that magnifies God's honor and glory and praise. So that's what we talk about when we say glorifying God. So if, the, so if our purpose is to glorify God, and we do it through the means of the Holy Spirit producing holiness or revealing holiness out of us, and that brings glory to God, then think about what you're doing in your life. Because the whole purpose of your life, so the whole purpose of your life is to do what? To glorify God. So then what am I working toward? I'm working toward the glory of God. My, my purpose for existence isn't just to bring God glory in this life, but to reach that very glory eternally. So I work in this life by the power of the Spirit to manifest God's glory so that I can go to eternal life and share in that glory. 
That's our hope. And our purpose as a church, among many other things, is to carry each other to that end. Like the, one of the most obvious uh, products of sin that I see in Christians, whatever the sin may be, sin disrupts our, uh, our knowledge, our awareness of certain truths. Sin disrupts our uh, connection with God, our relationship with God positionally. Sin cannot disrupt our relationship with God in any way because it's secured in Christ. But experientially, effectually, it feels like a disconnect, like a, broken, like a break in fellowship that we experience when we sin. And one of the most profound uh, products, and I say profound meaning I see it a lot, profound products of sin that I see in people's life is an absolute disconnect between what we're doing in this life and our eternal purpose to see God glorified. When I talk to people who are wrapped up in sin, what I see is someone who's like drowning in quicksand and the sand is like about to cover their face and the air that they breathe around them is the glory of God and they're like, I'd rather sink in this sand and choke on my sin and die in it than breathe the fresh air of God's glory That is my entire purpose for existence. And all I want to do is grab those people and pull them out of the sand and just be like, breathe. Breathe the breath of life. Breathe in the word of God. Breathe in Christ. Breathe in the Holy Spirit. It's not that hard. No, I know it is actually kind of hard, but it's as simple as that. It really is. And and we pass up glory for the very sin that Christ buried in the grave. And, and so if our entire existence is centered on the glory of God and our, the reason we live and behave and act in righteousness at all or we care about Christ is to see God glorified. Why do we enjoy Christ for God's glory? You know, like has someone ever given you a gift and then you get that gift and you're like, ah, uh, no thanks. And, you know, how do you think that person feels if you're like, ah, eh, no thanks. But if you get that gift and you're like, oh, this is amazing. It makes the gift giver feel like, oh, they really appreciate my gift. That brings them honor. And so God gives us a gift. And what is the gift? Himself. There isn't any greater gift that God could ever give us but himself. And he gives us himself. And when we throw that away and go, ah, I don't really want to enjoy that gift today. I'm going to choose sin instead. I'm going to wallow in self-pity and wickedness. I know I don't want to, but I don't have the energy to just do it today or whatever your reason or thought is. It doesn't matter. It's still, it's just like we're looking at God and we're being like, I don't want you. I don't want your gift. And God's like, all I want you to do is enjoy the gift forever. Enjoy me forever. That's what your eternity will be. That's what your life on this earth should be is to enjoy me forever. And if God is not a great enough satisfaction and enjoyment for you in this life, the problem is not God. The problem is how you perceive or what you know about God. Because this is why we teach the Bible. This is why Paul is going to tell Timothy today, keep an eye on your teaching because your teaching is going to tell the people what I'm like. And if you don't tell people what I'm really like, they won't be motivated to enjoy me. But if they discover who I am and what I'm really like and what I've done for them and the glory I can give them and the satisfaction I can bring them and the way I can change their life and the righteousness I can produce in them and the power of my Holy Spirit to change lives, to even perform miracles if need be, the things that I can do and the way I can reveal myself and the sovereignty that I have over all of creation, the people need to hear it. And if they hear it and they begin to know what I'm like and they grow in the knowledge of who I am, they will be satisfied. I will give them joy. We just need to know what he's like. And this is why we talk about being in the word so much. And all of this is meant to produce this glory. And here's, the, here's how this relates to us on a personal, uh, you know, one-on-one church uh, congregates becoming, you know, friends and fellowship and relationships. This is how it relates to that. My objective is to get to that glory. And I could look at you and be like, well, you can live your life however you want, but I'm going this way and just take off. 
And then nowhere in scripture is that ever a concept that's, that's given to the church. Instead, the concept is kind of like the military concept of like no man left behind. Our objective, this is from Galatians 6, is to carry each other to glory. Because if I get to glory and you don't, or if I get to glory ahead of you, and I get there and I'm like, Jesus, I made it. And by the way, I was first. <laughs> he's going to be like, where are your brothers and sisters? And I'm like, doesn't matter. I got here. And he's going to be like, well, that, of course it matters. They are me. Those people are me. And you. You are one with them in me. To leave them behind is to leave me behind. Go get your brothers and sisters. Pick them up. Pull them out of that quicksand. And drag them to me if you have to. And let me tell you, when I have to drag people to Christ, they usually fight back. And I'd say 90% of the time they leave because nobody wants to be dragged to Christ. Now, how you drag is a totally different conversation, right? Okay. I'm not saying I'm perfect in all that, right? I'm not saying my dragging methods are <laughs> perfected yet. But my point is, a, is not, that you're, not that you're harshly you know, working against people's will in a way that aggravates them, but that there is an, an urgency to, you need Christ and I will do anything in my power to bring you to him. And that is where we find ourselves in today's text is that Paul is essentially saying, your sanctification is not a solo journey. You're doing it together. Because if glory is the goal and we're all going to be there, then we want to go there together. So we get to verses 14 and 15. And Paul writes, do not neglect the gift that you have. He's, he's talking to Timothy, specifically Timothy's gift. Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Verse 15, practice these things, devote yourself to them. So that, so here's the reason, all may see your progress. So these verses tie into verse 12. In verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. And now in verses 14 through 15, we get a little more clarity as to why Timothy should not be despised for his young age. Paul will encourage Timothy again in 2 Timothy 1.6 about this, this gifting. Like he's saying here in verse 14, don't neglect the gift. And in 2 Timothy 1, 6, he says, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So we know that Paul, along with the Ephesian elders, was there to lay hands on Timothy. And this is the reference, this event that took place when the, the elders and Paul laid hands on Timothy, this commission for Timothy to be a pastor, or, or this commission for Timothy's service to the church. Um, is the event that Paul is talking about, and then he talks about the gift. So don't neglect the gift. So what's the gift? Well, Timothy's gifting is revealed in other verses. Primarily, preaching and teaching are his gifts. First Timothy, we have a few verses there. Paul uh, encourages Timothy's gift of teaching. In chapter 4, verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. So we see him encouraging that gift of teaching. In today's text, verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on your teaching. And in chapter 6, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. So we can see that the teaching ministry of, of Timothy is, is gifting and obviously important. And we know from chapter 3 that as an elder, teaching is a requirement. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now that, that phrase, preach the word, was the first thing that I was ever told when I first started getting interested in ministry. I was being led by my mentor who was, I think, 27 at the time, and I was like 22 or something like that. And he found me at my parents' Christian bookstore, and he brought me to Bible study. And one of the first things he told me was, Keruksan tan magan. Keruksan tan lagan is the Greek for preach the word. And he said, if there's anything you ever do, it's this. Preach the word. When it's popular, when it's unpopular, in season and out of season, when, it's, when, it's, when, it's, when you're free to do it and when you're 
when you're persecuted for doing it. It doesn't matter what stipulations or circumstances or situations surround the the necessity of preaching the word. But the necessity remains. Preach the word. So Paul encourages Timothy's gift of preaching and teaching continuously. And in 2 Timothy 4.2, the verse I just read, the preach the word text, we also see Timothy's gift of shepherding. Because it's in, in that he is not only preaching and teaching, but he is to apply those teachings to the life of the church, to hold them accountable through reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. And those kinds of activities require a constant involvement in the life of the body to hold the people accountable for what they are taught. And that makes sense to you? Do you? I want you to understand my responsibility as your pastor and Brian's responsibility as your elder, me and Brian as elders in the church. What we are called to do is not just tell you what the Bible says, but to hold you to it. That's my job. I don't mean job isn't the thing I do and get paid for. I mean the calling by which I've been called to. The thing that God has made my life. Which is not just to teach the Bible to you. Not just to preach the gospel to you. But to reprove you when you sin. To rebuke you when you sin. And to exhort you and encourage you when you're in sin. And even when you're not in sin, to find those areas in your life that need reproof and rebuke and exhortation and to bring them to you. That the reality is we live in a time of extreme sensitivity where any time any and let me just say as the generations progress, the younger generations become more and more sensitive, more and more entitled. I'm speaking generally, of course, because there are obviously young people who aren't this way, but generally speaking of the generations it's going to become more and more difficult to be to be a pastor i look at my own children i think will one of my children become a pastor one day and if they do when they're 45 50 years old they're going to have another generation that's 10 to 20 years old of people who do not care what they say even more so than the young generation today so it's going to be harder and harder to preach the gospel to, in, to install the gospel and to hold people accountable to the word of God and to reprove people and to rebuke them and to exhort them. They will not receive it. And the only way they can possibly receive it is if the Holy Spirit is in them and does the receiving. That's our only hope. And so it will become a difficult task as time goes on, but this is part of my responsibility to you is to preach and teach the truth. And then to enter your life and involve myself in your daily life to, to know you, to relate to you, to have a, and a good thing, I actually love people. I know a lot of pastors who aren't really people persons, right? And they've shared with me their struggles in ministry because they're like, I just don't like, you know, it's not my natural personality to like talk to people and build relationships. And, 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 uh. Actually, my son this week told me that, uh, that his friend had shared with him a meme. And it was like dads who like go to the restaurants and suddenly become best friends with the waiter. Right. And, and my son goes, he was saying that that's you, dad. And I was like, I know that's me. I love that about me. I love that God made me that way. I love people. I love making new friends. Every time my wife and I go somewhere new, I like make a couple of friends. She always, she's always like, I don't know how you just make all these friends everywhere. And she's like, you probably would get pulled over and like know the cop. And then I got pulled over and the cop came to the window. My wife is sitting next to me and he goes, hey, I'm, I don't remember his name. This is years ago. He goes, hey, I'm officer or whatever, whatever. And I go, dude. And I pull his business card from my console I go we just met the other day bro and he's like oh god we had this so cool and he's like i'll just give you a warning and go she's like holly's like you got to be kidding me man and i'm like i just like that's the way god wired me and that's cool and maybe you're not that way that's fine be who god made you i'm not telling you to be something else but i'm just giving you a little insight into me because i want you to understand that the reason i relate to you and love you and want to hang out with you and do things with you and talk to you and text you and call you and want to chat it up the reason i do that is not because like oh i have to it's my job never does that my my mood or my motivation i'm just like ooh people yeah and i just love connecting with you i love those relationships that's just the way god wired me 
And I'm grateful that he wired me that way for this very ministry. Because I need to do that with you so that when I look at your life and I go, uh-oh, I am sensing and seeing some behavior or some symptoms or some, some things that are not lining up or making sense to me. And I know that that is coming from this whatever behavior or mentality or perspective, which is rooted in a lack of knowledge about this Bible truth, then I want to involve myself in that and communicate to you. And if we have a healthy friendship, you'll be able to receive it. Now, if you're thinking, well, yeah, okay. Yeah, you do that, Pastor Mark, and I'll just live my life. No, that's your responsibility too. Your responsibility is to do that with each other. That's not just my job. My responsibility is to do that. We just talked about this last week or two weeks ago. My responsibility is to do that, to set an example for you to also do it. So don't think you're off the hook, that you don't have to involve yourself in everyone else's lives. We are absolutely and completely dependent on one another. So Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 14, that this gifting was given to Timothy by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on him. The laying on of hands is an is a Old Testament ceremony. It's a ceremony they, test, they practice in the Old Testament as a, as a means to um, identify with a sacrifice. So they would lay their hands on a sacrificial animal and what they were doing was identifying with the sacrifice. So it was their way of saying that I'm aware that I should be the one dying, that this animal is replacing me, is my substitute, which is what Christ becomes, the substitutionary atonement. This animal is my substitutionary atonement. I deserve to be there, and I'm grateful to God that I can identify with the wickedness that that this animal is going to take for me. And so, essentially, what that... What that laying on of hands was is a show of approval. Laying your hands on the sacrifice is your way of saying, I approve of this sacrifice in my place. So that approval, and I approve of God's grace, and I approve of God's gift, and I approve of God's sacrifice in my place. So the idea of laying on hands is an approval. And then in the New Testament, Paul commands it and encourages it and says that essentially, you know, It's still approval, except it's a different kind of approval. So there's no longer a necessity for the sacrificial system. So we're not laying hands on sacrifices. Instead, we're laying hands on men who are commissioned and called to go and serve in the ministry as an act of approval. Later in chapter 5, verse 22, we'll see some stipulations to this approval, which is, he says, Paul says to Timothy, don't be hasty in laying on the hands just for anyone, for any reason, but consider it, you know, Considered a meaningful ceremony so that the right people are prepared for public ministry. Additionally, and this is important as we look at verse 14, because verse 14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy. So the gift was given to you by prophecy. This does not mean that Timothy's gifts were received at the laying on of hands, but rather that laying hands on Timothy revealed the gifting of the Spirit that was already present. And I'll explain why. So Paul says, the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy. That giving was not giving of the gift. What was given to Timothy was communication about his gifting, approval of his gifting, along with the affirmation of his call to use those gifts in ministry. So essentially, what Timothy was given was verification of his gift and verification of his call. And we get this because in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says that there were prophecies previously made about you. Now, the words previously made means leading the way to. So the prophecies were a means to lead Timothy to his calling, which tells us that it is not the men who laid hands on him who delivered his gifting, but that the prophecies made about Timothy led him to his calling to serve as pastor. And in that calling, the elders laid hands on him and verified not only his call, but his gifts. And this is an important clarification to make because it was not the elders' hands that delivered Timothy's gift, but that it was a validation of his calling and his gifting because it keeps us, that truth keeps us 
from believing that humans can, can be the deliverers of spiritual gifts. And it also keeps us from this kind of charismatic uh, perspective that uh, when we lay hands on people, we are doing something miraculous, that we are giving people the Holy Spirit. This is kind of a charismatic theology where if I lay hands on people, if anybody can lay hands on anybody, and if we just lay hands on anybody, then they can receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, they'll speak in tongues. It's like, that's not in scripture. And they usually get it from Acts, which is crazy because in Acts, the Holy Spirit enters people through a variety of different ways. Sometimes the Spirit enters people when the preaching is being done. Sometimes the Spirit enters when they lay hands on them. Sometimes the Spirit enters when nothing's happening. So there's no clarity in scripture as to human beings doing something that produces the Holy Spirit in people. Instead, the laying out of hands is the human commission for people to be called into ministry. We know that the Spirit is the one who gives the gifts, not the laying out of hands that gives the gifts. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul clarifies this and he says, All these, now these is a reference to the gifts, the spiritual gifts. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, Paul is talking about all the spiritual gifts. And he's like, for this gift, same Spirit. For this gift, same Spirit. For this gift, same spirit. And then he gets to verse 11. He says, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the spirit wills the manifestation of himself to believers in spiritual gifts. No man is able to apportion those gifts. So it cannot be the hands of the Ephesian elders that provide Timothy's gifting, but instead it was his verification for his calling and gifting. Now, that event that took place when Paul and the Ephesian elders laid their hands on Timothy was early in Timothy's life when Timothy first joined Paul. We see this in Acts chapter 16. Paul joins Timothy. Timothy is very young at that time, probably late teens. So the elders in the church at Ephesus saw Timothy as a young man. Immature in age, immature spiritually because he's a new believer. And though he knew that they though they knew that he was gifted, he was still young and had made little progress in his sanctification at the time when they laid hands on him. But they laid hands on him nonetheless. They saw his gifting, they saw his potential, they laid hands on Timothy. This was Paul's decision. The elders in Ephesus trusted Paul. They got saved through Paul's ministry. Um, and so So Paul, now years later, Timothy had been, they laid hands on him years ago, and now it's years later. So they knew Timothy is young and immature and not having grown much, and now years later, Timothy has matured. He has grown in doctrine and in holiness, and he has been sanctified to the point of being equipped to lead the church. Now that information is vital to our understanding of verse 15, where Paul says, practice these things, devote yourself to them, So that, here's the reason, so that all may see your progress. Paul is not telling Timothy that he must grow now in the presence of the Ephesian church so that they can see him growing spiritually right in front of their eyes as he shepherds and teaches and preaches. Now that truth is obvious that he does need to continue to grow. We'll cover that in a second. But that's not what Paul is telling him when he says that all may see your progress. He's not telling them that... He's not telling Timothy, hey, now's the time to start growing so they can see your progress as you go. What he's saying is that there is a significant gap in time between the laying on of hands on Timothy and his new commission to lead the church. So now, years after they laid hands on him, the church in Ephesus does finally see that Timothy has already progressed. So that gives light to Paul's command that Timothy not let them despise him for his youth. Because this is why Jesus says that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Because a prophet in his hometown is thought of as an immature child. Because a prophet is raised as a child. And and everyone in the hometown knows that child. And they see the sin and the wickedness and the the foolishness of child. Proverbs tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And so the, the foolishness of a child is revealed. Then that child grows and matures. They move out and they move on. And they become a prophet. And they return to their hometown. And everyone goes exactly what they said to Jesus. Is this not the son of the carpenter? Don't we know his sisters? Isn't his mother? Mother Mary, like they just, they mock him because they remember him as a child. That's why a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And that's why Paul is telling Timothy, 
Don't let them despise you for your youth. They're going to remember you as this immature kid when they laid hands on you. But now you've grown and matured. So let them see that progress you've made. And don't give them a reason to believe otherwise. And then Paul commands in verse 15, practice these things, devote yourself to them as a means to continue to verify the spiritual progress that the Ephesian church has already seen in him. Essentially, Timothy is to do what Jesus commanded all of us to do in John 15, 8. So just keep in mind, like Timothy has already progressed to the point where he is called to lead and shepherd and elder the church. That's a significant growth. That's a significant role that he's in. And now Paul's telling him, practice these things and devote yourself, devote yourself to them. Timothy already knows that. That's not news to him. He didn't get to where he is by not practicing and not devoting himself to these things. So, so what, is, what is essentially, what is Paul telling Timothy? What Jesus tells us in John 15, 8. Prove it. Prove to be my disciple. Timothy is to prove that his spiritual development is genuine by maintaining and growing in that which he is already, which is already evident. And we see the similar uh, command that Paul encourages the Thessalonians of 1 Thessalonians 4.1, where they are already maturing, and Paul tells them to do so more and more. To continue in the faith as evidence that your growth is genuinely the work of the Spirit's sanctification. So at this point, most of what Paul reveals to Timothy is about Timothy's personal spiritual growth, right? It's a very personal letter to Timothy. And in verse 15, it reveals that Timothy's personal spiritual growth must, not, must now be proven to those whom he leads and shepherds. So there is a relationship between Timothy's personal, personal growth and the congregation because there's a necessity that Paul conveys that the church sees that progress that the pastor is making. So Timothy can now see that his spiritual growth is no longer just his own personal journey, but that it has significant impact on the local body of Christ that he is leading. And Paul clarifies that fact even more profoundly in verse 16, where he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, let me just give you a little clarity on the word save there, and then I'm going to explain how that kind of works out in the text. This word save can be really tricky. The problem with, uh, the problem with our interpretation process sometimes when we read scripture is we look at this word save or saved or saving or salvation, any form of that word, and we immediately Take it to mean the like my my justification, like the like the moment I got saved when I believed in Christ and was declared holy. Uh, this moment of justification is so salvation has three elements: justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is that moment we are redeemed, that moment when God slams his gavel of righteousness and says, "I declare you righteous." So I give to you the righteousness of my son, Jesus, and I forgive your sins and take them and put them on the cross. It's the great exchange, as Martin Luther calls it. And so that justification is that moment we get saved. It's what we call effectual salvation. It's the moment our salvation takes effect for us. Because genuine regeneration of our heart, the moment we're actually justified, happens before we're even aware of it. Because in order to believe the gospel, faith is required. And faith is a gift of the Spirit, Ephesians 2, 8. And 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says you can only say Jesus is Lord in the Spirit. So we need the Spirit who delivers the gift of faith and regenerates our heart prior to even our awareness that it's happening. And all God is orchestrating that with somebody in your life delivering the gospel message to you. And God orchestrates those elements together. And with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit of our hearts and the gift of faith that comes along with it, with that gift... From God, so that no man may boast of his own faith, we declare, I believe in the gospel. And so we say, I believe. It's our first act of obedience. And you can never obey God without the Holy Spirit. And so our first act of obedience 
is not us getting saved. It's us declaring that we've been saved. Now, we don't understand that when it happens. Most people don't understand that that's what's going on when it happens. But that's why we talk about that there are depths to the gospel that we may not see. That the gospel is deeper than we think. And that's one of the elements where we take the gospel and we go a little bit deeper. And in that work of the Holy Spirit, at that moment of justification, we become Christ's. We get filled with the Holy Spirit. We are children of God. Our life is our, the Holy Spirit by entering us. Ephesians 1.13 seals us for eternity. Our hope is now set on Christ. And that moment of justification begins a process that we call sanctification. That's the second element of salvation. And sanctification goes for the rest of your life. And the entire purpose of sanctification is to get us to where? Glorification. So sanctification serves two purposes. Well, really more than two, but I'm going to tell you two. One, your sanctification brings you to glory, to the third element of salvation, which is glorification, which is what happens at the end of time when Christ returns and he, and he gives us new bodies, glorified bodies in an eternal glorified state, in a new heaven, a new earth, we would dwell with him forever in glory. That's, that's the end of our salvation, but also the continuation of that last piece, which is glorification. So that's what sanctification is doing, is it's getting us to glory. Well, how does it get us to glory? By the second part. It gets us to glory by validating our justification. So sanctification is a lifelong process of validating that you've been justified. That's why Jesus says, prove to be my disciples. Sanctification is a lifelong proving ground. And not proving in the sense of, oh, I better prove it today or God's not going to love me. Not that kind of proving. If you genuinely have the Holy Spirit in you, you will, you have been justified. And if you really have been justified, the Spirit will sanctify you into glory. So that sanctification is a lifelong process of you proving that you've been justified. And, and you've got this beautiful prize at the end of the finish line called eternal glory in the presence of perfect joy in God's presence that we have to motivate us toward that end. So that helps you understand what salvation is a little bit. And again, there's even greater depths than that to it. But when Paul says, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Listen, the Ephesian church is already saved. Timothy's already saved. He's not going to do something that makes saved people suddenly like more saved or unsaved and then saved again. And the opposite of this is true. If you don't persist in this, you will not save yourself and your hearers. He's not telling Timothy that if you don't do this, people who are saved will become unsaved. He's using this word save to essentially say that by persisting in this, if you persist in this, by doing so, you will validate or sanctify these people into glory. Not that Timothy is their savior and he's saving them, but he's sanctifying them. He's leading them into spiritual sanctification, which justifies or validates their justification and leads them to glory. That's the concept of saving here. And this verse, verse 16, is the connecting truth between Timothy's personal growth and the importance of the church seeing Timothy's progress. Timothy's personal spiritual life is no longer personal. There's a lot more at stake now. It's the church is at stake and his own life is at stake. Though he obviously has a personal relationship with God that is his and his alone. Nevertheless, as a church leader and a preacher and a teacher and a shepherd, his spiritual life is now and will forever be on the chopping block. It will be under a microscope, not just to the people, but to God himself. We see this in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should be teachers, brothers and sisters, because they will be judged with greater strictness. So there is... This microscope on the life of a teacher. If you're going to teach these things, you need to live them. That's where he's getting at. And his spiritual growth, Timothy's spiritual growth, the preachers and teachers and elders' spiritual growth is no longer their own personal journey, but has now become a means by which the evidence of the powerful working of the gospel that he preaches will be measured. His life is now the measurement. This is why Scripture is filled with commands for leaders and church elders and pastors and teachers and preachers. Because if you're going to stand here and say these things, then you have to live them. And there's a greater judgment and strictness for you because you know them and you declare them. That's a weighty thought. I think about that often. And when I sit, I'm like, oh boy. So 
in those moments, I think, okay, I'm judged with greater strictness, but at the same time, I'm not judged at all. Christ took my judgment. And in that moment, I could go one of two ways. Well, Christ took my judgment, so it doesn't matter what I do. That's the bad way. Christ took my judgment, so now I can be righteous. That's the right way. That's how we should be motivated. So what Paul's getting at in verse 16 is that Timothy should now consider that what is at stake is his, in his personal devotion to Christ is not just his own sanctification, but the sanctification of the rest of the church that he's shepherding. Like, I'm aware of that. This is why Hebrews 13, 17 says uh, to the church, submit to your leaders and obey them. Why? Because they are held accountable for your soul. And don't make this hard on them by being disobedient. Make it easy on them so that they can have joy with you. Because there's this burden of being accountable for your soul. So the things I say up here matter greatly. If Timothy persists in keeping a close watch on himself and his teaching, he will not only ensure that he continues to grow in his faith, but that the body he is leading will also grow in theirs. So Timothy's need to persist in that will produce his own sanctifying growth as well as the sanctifying growth of those around him and under his leadership and under his teaching. And if Timothy does not do this, if he does not keep a close watch on himself and his teaching, he may lead himself and his hearers astray which may become the means by which God reveals that both Timothy and the church are not genuinely saved as evidenced by their continual movement away from obedience that is rooted in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine that is supposed to be taught and lived by the shepherd of the church. So that's what Paul's, that's the opposite of what could happen. That's what Paul's very pushing Timothy away from. Persist in this and keep an eye on your teaching. And if you do so, you will lead your, you, yourself, and your people to glory. But if you don't, you may lead people astray. And it may be the means by which God reveals that these, you or those people were never saved. So how do we validate and verify and prove this salvation? We keep moving toward glory. You keep an eye on your teaching. You persist in this. You keep grinding and keep going and keep fighting and keep moving and keep teaching and keep dying and keep sacrificing and keep suffering and keep doing whatever it takes to lead those people, even if you got to drag them across the finish line. That's what it takes, Timothy. There is no rest for you in this. We see this in Hebrews chapter 4. There's no rest in this life. There's days where we should rest. We're commanded to actually rest And that rest is meant to be edifying to our physical bodies as much as our spiritual bodies. It's meant to be a rejuvenation. We see that in scripture. So to get these little glimpses of rest in this life. But there's no rest, you know. I'm going on vacation for 10 days. That's quote unquote rest. I get one solid week away with my wife where we get to just, you know check out. Do you think I'm really checked out? You don't think I think about you guys? My wife will bring up church stuff. I'm like, no, no, we're not talking about church stuff. We're trying to rest and enjoy life, but there's no changing the fact that there is a burden, and it's a good burden, on my shoulders that I feel for you and for the church and responsibility that I can't escape. So a, a week away, doesn't. it's not an escape. It's a, it's a, it's a sliver. It's a glimpse into the rest that we will have eternally. So in, Ephes- in uh, Hebrews 4, we see this idea where, 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 where the author's talking about Joshua leading the people into the promised land. And he says, even when Joshua led the people in the promised land, that wasn't real rest. The promised land wasn't rest. Because if it, God had talked about that as rest, then there would be no need to talk about the eternal promise of rest in Christ. So, there is no rest for us. There's no rest for you. There's no rest for me. We get days of rest. We get days off. We get time of you know, breaks. We get the ebbs and flows of life. We get the valleys and the, and, the, and the mountaintops, the days that are easy and the days that are hard and the weeks that are easy and the weeks that are hard and the times where it's like very, you know, the Christian life is just kind of very easy and enjoyable. And then those times when it's hard and painful and difficult and struggle and a trial 
And we have to grin and bear it and fight and trust and pray and be connected to the word and connected to each other. And there's so, and, and, and life goes in those ebbs and flows. But ultimately, even in the easy times, it's not a time of rest because I was told at a young age, in the times that are easy, take as much of that time as you can to learn as much about God as you can. That is not a time for rest. That is a time to learn. Because you're going to need that knowledge when the hard time comes next. So there's no break for us. And we fight and we struggle and we go and we live and we, 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 we put effort endlessly in this life into that sanctification. So Paul has in mind that sanctification is evidence of true salvation. And true salvation will produce genuine sanctification. And that genuine sanctification will require sound doctrine and righteousness and practice. And that is why Timothy is commanded to stay on the grind and teach and persist in teaching and to pay attention to his own growth. So to daily verify the confidence he has in Christ, which will pour over into the congregation's confidence through his teaching of who they are in Christ. So this does not mean that if Timothy does not keep a close watch on himself and on his teaching that the church or himself will suddenly become unsaved. Rather, Paul knows what Jesus taught because Jesus himself visited Paul several times and taught Paul himself. So Paul knows what Jesus said in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. How should the believer understand that verse? You can understand that verse in two ways. And there's many verses in Scripture like that, conditional statements, if-then statements, that say the same thing. If you're truly my disciples, you'll follow me. If you're my sheep, you'll hear my voice and follow me. There's a lot of conditional statements that say this exact same concept. The one we just read, if you prove to be my disciples, is the same concept here. But there are several if-then conditional statements. So how should we read this? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You could look at it like this. You better keep me and my word or you don't love me. Does that convey the heart of Jesus Christ? Not in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he says, I'm gentle and lowly. <laughs> like we, it's, it's very easy in our sinful flesh to take this conditional text and say, uh-oh, the moment I do something wrong, I don't love Jesus. Since when did your love for Jesus become dependent on you loving Jesus. You don't love Jesus. God loves Jesus. And the Holy Spirit loves Jesus. And God loves you, and you hate God. And because God is gracious, he chose to love you, you who hates him. And he gave you himself who loves himself. So he puts his spirit, who loves Christ, in you, and the Holy Spirit changes you completely. And now the Spirit of God in you loves Christ. And your new identity in Christ loves Christ. But you don't. Your flesh doesn't. And before you knew Christ, you couldn't. So what on earth makes us think that our love for God was, was ever us? Or will ever be us in this life. You will never love Jesus in this life. Your flesh, this bag of bones that you carry around every day, this human being that you are, will never love Christ. Only Christ in you can love Christ. And the new creation he has made out of you, which is now the person of Christ himself in you, operating through you to love Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm getting at is, your loving Jesus was never dependent on you in the first place. What makes you think that you continuing to love Jesus will be you? The only way to grow in your love for Christ is to be filled with the Spirit. Be in the Word, know Christ, know God, commune with Him, grow in the Spirit. The Spirit will grow you. He will sanctify this you that, that, is, that is a new creation, something new. You're not who you used to be. So as I say to you, you don't love Jesus, I'm talking about who you used to be. Now you love Jesus because Christ is in you. 
But you loving Jesus was never dependent on you. It is totally the Holy Spirit. So you continuing to love him by keeping his word is only something the Spirit can do. So how should we read this verse? Not as a, a, like a dark shadow overhead. Or you better love, you better obey my word or you don't love me. We use the word of God like that. We're missing the heartbeat of who God is. What does this verse really mean? It means, hey, you never could have loved me on your own. In fact, you didn't love me. I loved you. That's what he says to the apostles. And because I love you, I put my spirit in you. I gave you the gift of myself who now loves me perfectly. So now in my spirit, you can love me. And by my spirit, Ezekiel 36, 27, you can obey me. And that obedience is a manifestation of the love for me that I put in you by my spirit. And when we think about this command, this conditional statement in those terms, it becomes motivation to keep his word. Now it's like I love Christ because Christ put his spirit in me. I know that apart from the spirit, I can't love Christ. So now I'm motivated to just keep his word, to be in his word, to know his word, to grow in his word so that I can continue to know him and love him better and more. That, that is a, a positive motivation that comes from the heart and the mouth of Christ who has compassion for you and loves you and is teaching you this with gentleness. Though there is severity in this verse, there is encouragement and gentleness in it. So don't take it in a negative sense. What this verse is telling us is if you don't keep this word, you don't love him. That's true. The conditional statement makes it obvious. If you don't keep his word, then you don't love him. But as believers, we should look at this and go, yeah, but I couldn't love him anyways. It's only he who loves me that is in me that makes me love him. So even my work to obey him is not my work. That's the Holy Spirit. So what do I do? I don't have to work harder at obedience. I got to get filled with the Spirit. That's what I got to do. I got to be in the word. I got to commune with God. I got to pray. I got to be filled. I got to confess my sin. I got to bring my sin before the Lord. I got to make war with sin. I got to battle my sin. I got to fight against my sin. I got to know the enemy and I got to know myself. And the word of God tells me about the enemy. And the word of God tells me about myself. And the word of God tells me about God. So I need to know who God is, who the enemy is, what God's like, what the enemy's like, who I am, who I was, who I am now in Christ. And I'm only going to know any of those things in the world word and then people spend no time in the bible and they wonder why their lives are crazy out of out of whack and wild and sinful and falling apart and nothing makes sense for them and they're struggling it's not because they're faithfully sacrificing because if you were faithfully sacrificing and suffering because of that then joy would accompany that so when i see misery accompanying people's hard times i think there is obedience that is missing because there is a love of Christ that is missing, which means the word of God is missing in their life. And I know it's missing because they're not filled with the Spirit. That's a tension that exists for Christians. And that tension exists for believers. It's not meant to produce a lack of confidence in our salvation. Rather, it's meant to produce genuine confidence in our salvation. That the Spirit truly dwells within and the Spirit will produce the fruit of true faith in the process of sanctification. We see this in Philippians 2.12. We participate with God in this process of sanctification. Paul says, work out your own salvation with true fear and trembling. That word salvation there refers specifically to the sanctification part. Work out your sanctification. Essentially, it's another way of saying prove that you've been justified. By being sanctified. Prove that glory is your goal. By continuing in sanctification. And that, that does not negate God's sovereignty in our sanctification. It just reveals that God's sovereign will for our sanctification is that he operates us toward participation with the Spirit in that work. Knowing this, Paul encourages Timothy to serve the church through his spreading and teaching in such a way, his shepherding, sorry, Shepherding and teaching in such a way that he, the preacher and the teacher, Timothy, is another one of God's sovereign means to ensure the salvation of himself and the church that he leaves, leads revealed in their growth. So what do we get out of this? We see the vitality of the church is dependent on each other. 
Now, can you grow if I'm not? I, I do believe that you can. But the warning in this text is to the preacher, and to the teacher, and to the elders. Uh, well, if they don't grow because you're, <laughs> if they don't grow because you're not, then that's on you. And if they do grow and you're not, then you don't get the reward and the blessing for their growth. So what is the leader, pastor, shepherd, elder, teacher supposed to do? Grow. Set an example for you. And that shows the, the, the necessity of the interconnectivity of the church's growth. That truth applies across the board. That's not just leadership down to the congregation or leadership through and into the congregation. That's not the only relationship that is required here. It is amongst each other and with each other and for each other that we live and operate and grow and are sanctified. It is important that we are involved in each other's lives. It is important that we are involved in the word together. And I've said this a gazillion times and I'll say it again. This is why we have a thousand Bible studies a week. And we do it together so that we can grow together. Together. If we're not doing it together, then what is the point? I don't need to be, If we're not going to do it together, then I'm not coming next Sunday. Wait, I'm not, I'm not coming next Sunday. Right, okay, let me take that back. Because when I'm not here next Sunday, I don't want you to be like, he warned us. So, <laughs> What's the point of me showing up, or, or you, or anybody? What's the point of any of us showing up at church if, if we're not going to grow together? I mean, I don't need you if we're not going to do it together. I could just stay home with my family. I'll just read a couple Bible verses to them. I'll teach my boys the Bible. We'll sing a couple songs. My wife and I, we can do music together. I'll pull up my guitar and we'll do a little, you know, campfire, do 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 kumbaya, my Lord. And we'll sing a couple songs and I'll read the Bible to my kids. And I don't need you. I, I care about my family. I'll grow with them. But if we're not going to do it together, then we don't need to be here on Sunday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. But you do. You do show up which is fantastic, right? And, and because you do, and I could, I could have every person in this room raise their hand and say, tell me how you've grown and why you think you're growing. And I guarantee every one of you would be like, well, my church in, ensures that I'm in the word with the church three, four, five, six times a week. So how could I not grow? And that's in addition to your own personal growth and all the other ways that God is working in your life that are separate or maybe distinct from this actual participation in this particular body. But nevertheless, I, I, I've heard your testimonies. I've heard many of you say, I'm growing because we as a body are in the word together. So is it, is it, is it the church elders? Do we get the praise? Oh, we brought you together. We're so wonderful. Is it the building? Oh, thank you for the building. It's brought us together. Is it Bible study? Oh, thank you for Bible study. We brought it together. No. What is it that's doing the work? Christ. And what does he use? His words. He is the word. It's the word of God that's changing your life. And the difference is that we do it together. It is important that we, that we do this together, that we are sanctified. Like, I want, I'm just thinking about what is the real pragmatic... I'm done here. Just give me a second, though. What is the real pragmatic application of this text? It's grow together. Do the work of a faithful servant of Christ. Be submitted and subject to your Lord and Master by being faithful in the Word, by faithfulness in prayer, and by being faithful in all their areas of godly discipline, such as fellowship with the body, giving, serving, sacrificing, learning, and so on and so on, and other spiritual disciplines. And this is why Paul tells Timothy at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That is an encouragement that we also continue to fight and run and keep the faith to ensure that our salvation is genuine and real, which gives us confidence in our assurance of salvation in Christ, which is all I want for you is absolute assurance, which exists in that tension of I need to continue to fight for that assurance through my sanctification toward more obedience. That helps my assurance. And when I fail, I don't lose assurance. I trust in the gospel and the grace of God that has redeemed me. I know I'm still saved. And that motivates me to continue. 
So continue and endure. Sanctification is something that we must work at and fight for and daily grind into as God's sovereign means to encourage and ensure and our assurance and confidence in Christ and what he's already done for us. So don't give up. Keep going. I know it's exhausting. I know you've been thinking, hey, for the last two years at Grace Church, I've been grinding with this church, dying with this church, going through hard times with this church, growing with this church, and it's worth it. And it's really easy to get to this point and go, whoo, I can finally breathe. And I'm telling you, no. We keep going. We keep fighting. We keep grinding. Now, it's different now. Things are different. Circumstances are different. Situations are different. So it'll feel different, and that's okay. But don't let up. Keep fighting. Listen, your life is but a vapor. It's a sliver of time in all of eternity. You're going to get to heaven, and I guarantee you every single one of us is going to look back and go, oops, I wasted that life. I don't want to say that. And I know this life feels like, oh, this is so important. I've got another 40 years. I'm 40 years old right now. I'm like, if I live to 80, I'll be super happy. If I live to 90, I'll be like ecstatic. If I live to 100, I don't know if I'll know what's going on at that point. But, <laughs> but, but either way, that, is, that seems like forever. Okay, I guarantee you, find someone who's around, say, the age in their 80s or 90s and ask that person, does your life feel like it's been going on forever? Or does, what is your perspective on life and time? And I guarantee you most of those people are going to be like, man, it goes so fast. And we're spending it on all kinds of things. It's like, no, let's, let's give it everything we got. So much, so pushing so hard that just like in Hebrews 12 too, where it says, don't, don't stop pushing now because you haven't pushed yourself to the point of shedding blood like Christ. So let's go hard. Let's fight and let's run and let's keep the faith. Let's keep going. And if that, if that kind of push and that motivation and that energy causes us to lose our life at the age of 40, then so be it. I get Christ then. That's the glory I'm looking for. And if it doesn't cost me my life, then I'll use this blink of an eye we call life or this fleeting vapor that we call life. I'm going to use it. Every ounce I have for Jesus so that when I get to the end, I get to spend eternity looking back at my life and being like, I'm so glad I didn't waste that life. This life is not nearly as important as we think it is. And on the other hand, it's more important than we even understand. Because it has eternal ramifications. And yet we waste it. Don't give up. Don't slow down. Let's fight the good fight. Let's finish the race. And let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. I thank you for the patience of your people to endure the word every Sunday morning as I preach for one hour. And I don't say that jokingly. I say that because it really is truly endurance by your people to have them sit through the word patiently, graciously, and with ears and eyes open to truth. And I pray that as the word is preached, it would soak into their souls. That this would not just be information in their mind, but that they would download it into their heart and actually live this. And this life is hard to live, God. It's hard to live faithful to you sometimes. So we are dependent completely on you. Help us. Make us fight this fight and run this race and keep the faith. We want to finish well. And if that finish line is today or two years from now, or 10, or 20, or 50 years from now, however long it is, we just want to make every day you give us about you so we can know you more, be satisfied in you, and bring you glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.